This is just a smidge more with Brandy Henson. I'm Holly Stillings, and this is Everything You Want to Know Without an Appointment. This is a weekly podcast where medical profession and real life collide. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Holly Stillings, and we are coming to you from Beverly Hills today, which is super excited. Um, we've got Brandy with us, and we also brought along Lexi. Hello. One of our favorite injectors at Reverse Gravity. And we're sitting here with Dr. Neil Ranez. Did I pronounce that right? You sure did. Okay. I'm impressed. Okay, good. Good morning, everyone. I was so and nervous about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's short, but intimidating. World-renowned plastic surgeon. Overachiever. You were sitting here going through a lot of his slides of facial traumas and his background of patients that necessarily don't want to be shared um, publicly. And it's it's shocking. It's shocking what you can do. It really is. Well, it's a beautiful thing. We can transform lives in the trauma setting and the cancer setting, but also in the aesthetic setting, right? So patients come to us from all different reasons and they have different motivations as to what they want fixed or addressed. And our skills and training and knowledge uh, allows us to give them what they want. It really does. And before we came here, we read your background and we go through the bio, but when you're looking at the pictures of the people that you've helped and really given them back their lives from, you know, tragedy or whatever else, it's it's remarkable. And it gives you a huge understanding of the shape of people and their face and their bone structure and how to kind of create whatever they've lost. It's amazing. Absolutely. And the thing is, is whether you're talking reconstructive or a it's kind of a circle that it's or a chicken and the egg thing, right? It's like what came first? And you have to really understand reconstructive principles to apply them to aesthetic um, principles and procedures. But then you also, even the reconstructive patients, like if they don't look good at the end of the day, they're not happy. They kind of every single one of us wants to look really good, wants to look our best and aesthetically pleasing. So you kind of have to keep both in mind every single time. Form and function is what plastic surgeons really talk about. And I'm sure you guys in your med spot kind of think about the same thing whenever you see a patient sits across from you and says, hey, I want this. I want my lips done. Well, you got to think about, okay, if I inject them, are they going to be able to eat, speak, things like that, right? That's the form part of it, um, the function part of it. And then you'd look at the form and you look at, okay, am I going to make the cupid's bow augmented? And, you know, how much volume do I want to add to the upper lip, the lower lip, the golden ratio? How much do I want to enhance them and kind of make it look really sexy and nice? Absolutely. And plastic surgery is, is becoming, I feel like, so much more socially acceptable nowadays. Um, it's just become a big part of our culture. And I think people are becoming a little bit more comfortable with sharing their experiences, not so much on Instagram or social media. We were talking about that. But going through your pictures, your work is just absolutely phenomenal. You can't go wrong. That's for sure. <laughs> Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about your background. You grew up in the East Coast, Maryland. Actually, I was born in Toronto. 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 Okay. And then moved down to Alabama for a couple of years. I was really young. And then our family kind of landed in Maryland. And that's where we did middle school, high school. And um, grew up there. Just stayed in Baltimore for, went to Johns Hopkins for undergrad. Stayed at the University of Maryland, the trauma center for medical school. And then up to New York for residency. So I was really an East Coast person my whole life. Yeah. And then I come out here for fellowship and, and absolutely fell it. in love with <laughs> That's LA. what a lot of plastic surgeons we talk to, they've come from the East Coast, they come out here for a fellow, and they're like, that's it. I never went back. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's pretty good. Who's your sports team? So I love soccer. 
Okay. And I would say Manchester United since I was seven years old. When okay. It was David Beckham, Giggs, um, Rooney. Like it was, they had such a power team. Okay. Did you watch David Beckham's documentary? I did. I've read his book. He's a, so he's good. an idol of mine. He has a special place in my heart. <laughs> and he's so clean. He's always cleaning surfaces. It's awesome. <laughs> oh, I would love him. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. I was just like, I'm watching it now. This is incredible, and I feel him so much. I was like, this is like he cleans every surface perfectly. That's perfect. Which says That's a lot perfect. about your personality. Right, per, mm-hmm. you know everything is. You know, you do one thing one way, you do it everything that way. It's it's hilarious. And you are a professional soccer player, right? I did. So two years I played professionally, and then I had to make a big decision whether I go to Europe and continue that dream or stay in school. What did your mother say? Oh, it, there were so many fights in the house. My dad was like, go play soccer. And then my mom was like, uh, don't be an idiot. Please stay in school. <laughs> and so we ended up with a deal. I, was, I said I was going to apply to med school once. And at that time, too, it was kind of the transition where a lot of people, a lot of applicants would do a gap year. They would do research. They would go do a Ph.D. or a master's or, you know, go be a Fulbright scholar somewhere. And then they would get accepted in medical school. So it's really, really actually um, what the traditional route was actually now becoming the less popular route of going straight through. It really is. And so I told my mom, I was like, listen, I'll apply once. If I get in, great. I'll go to med school. If I don't, I'm on the first flight to Europe. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, and geez. I did get in. So Your mom's like, please, <laughs> please, <laughs> come on. Yeah. <laughs> A lot was riding on that. A lot was riding on that prayer. <laughs> I love it. And so I think it's really important that we talk about your facial trauma background. I think that's something that sets you apart from a lot of plastic surgeons. Tell us a little bit about that because it's a pretty interesting story. So I think that's what actually got me interested in plastic surgery in general. In medical school, there's three big routes, I think. And there's medicine where you're mostly seeing patients, prescribing medications, you know, seeing them at six months a year, seeing if their blood pressure, diabetes, that you just had going off lab numbers or blood pressure numbers and you see if you made a change and things like that, which is very important. It's just not for me. And then you have like psychiatry, which is like the abstract, like trying to get your mind into someone else's mind to help them. And like, I mean, there's so much, as we know, around us of mental health and those professionals, like kudos to them. It's such a hard job. But again, not for me. And I realized very quickly, I love procedures. I love change. I love like fixing things with my hands, working with my hands. And, you know, I I feel like I'm pretty good with my hands or the hand-to-hand-eye coordination that I have. And so I kind of got naturally drawn into surgery and orthopedic surgery staying near sports is obviously mm-hmm. like my yeah. first love and I did a bunch of research and this and that and then the first ever face transplant that we kind of like briefly talked about beforehand happened at the University of Maryland Shock Trauma Center and that just blew my mind I was like wait plastic surgeons do this mm-hmm. like I thought it was just like boob jobs and nose jobs and that's it right and here you have like head to toe all ages you've got all forms of reconstruction all forms of aesthetics and so I really just like fell in love instantly and it, I would actually like go to school in the morning and then at nights I would hang out at the shock trauma center I would like sew up um, people if the residents were busy you know I'd help them out as much as I can and I kind of really like dove full full both feet in and I got to see a tremendous amount of things I you know whether it was violence um, gunshots whether it was stabbings whether it was like you know bad um, industrial accidents so Baltimore actually has a very unique population because you have gang violence at its high at its peak yeah you have 95 highway which is like high velocity accidents like in New York no one gets in a car accident right. that like killed you know caused the mangles a person because you're going 20 miles an hour stuck in traffic but when you're going like 70 80 90 miles an hour and you hit something like you're a human really gets deformed and then you have like western maryland that pulls from in pennsylvania all these heavy machine um, industrial accidents 
And so that unique population there is, I mean, no wonder why Maryland Track Trauma is like one of the best trauma centers in the country. How interesting. Yeah. So then was it at that point that you were like, okay, I'm going into plastic surgery? That's exactly That's, what happened. And so. that was it? And that like was you it. never looked back and you never... So I realized, I, I kind of thought a lot about it. My third year of med school, I was like, that's when you really have to decide. And I thought orthopedics is cool. I think I liked the people, the culture. I liked bones. I liked fixing things and dealing with athletes and motivated patients, which is really nice. But every single, you know, ACL kind of gets reconstructed the same way. You end up with the same scar that I have if we get our ACLs done together. Versus in plastic surgery, I love the creativity. It's like you come to me with a problem and the solution isn't already written down. It's mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. the, there's plastic surgery deals with principles, not solutions. And so as long as you're not violating plastic surgery principles on blood flow, on um, tension and things like that, kind of the world is your oyster to solve a problem. And that's what really got me into plastic surgery. And also the precision and the meticulousness, like you were talking about David Beckham scrubbing uh, right. <laughs> table, you know, the countertops mm -hmm. in a meticulous way. Well, that's a part of our livelihood too, is being meticulous and very detail or driven. And coming to work with Dr. Gavami, Brandy always talks about his work and how did you get into this office? Like, how did you guys start working together? So very serendipitously, actually, he joined the fellowship that I got, but we basically match into a fellowship two years in advance. So I had no idea he was not part of it at that time. Mm -hmm. It was Dr. Calvert, it was Dr. Chopra, Dr. Orden, um, Dr. Grant Stevens. Um, so there's like, it's a really good fellowship out here in LA with like five, six different offices that the fellows would spend time with. And then my, when I first, when I was slated to start, all of a sudden Dr. Gavami announces that, hey, I wanna train fellows and I wanna be part of this great fellowship. And so all of a sudden now we're kind of rotating in this office as well. And we hit it off from day one. I mean, our personalities are great. I respect him a tremendous amount. He's obviously a world expert, a phenomenal surgeon, great guy all around. And so we worked together as you know, fellow and um, mentee mentor for a year. And then I was very, very fortunate that he uh, asked me to stay on as his first ever plastic surgery associate. So That's amazing. That is yeah. amazing. Yeah. So now what is your favorite procedure that you're doing right now? I love rhinoplasties. I think they're so artistic. There's the you got to be precise. I think there's an artistic nature to it, but yet there's a structural, functional component to mm -hmm. breathing and things like that. Um, and then my second favorite is probably facelifts, like deep lane facelifts. I think are awesome. There again, you're kind of like looking, staring down the barrel of the gun. Like you've got the nerves right there. You go a millimeter too deep, and you, someone won't smile for the rest of their life. You know, so the. It's very challenging. It's very stressful, but it's also very rewarding. And then mm -hmm. you see these great transformations and, you know, people look 15, 20 years younger and they're happy and they're thrilled. And all of a sudden, they've, you've kind of given them life back. You've kind of set back their clock and yeah. they love it. Well, and I think things are changing a little bit, too, because I've been listening to a lot of plastic surgery podcasts and everything. And... Traditionally, I think when we were all younger, it was, you know, it was people are doing plastic surgery at like 60 and above. And I'm hearing all these things about good skin, bad skin. And, you know, really the time to come in is younger, right? I mean, what do you think about that? Well, think about working like, out. Think bounce about back health wise, the, the good skin, bad skin. What do you, you know, what's your thought? Think about your general health, right? Like mm -hmm. if you're young and you go to the gym every day, we do yoga like we talked about, we eat well, great. Like you're going to age well, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to not go through these massive changes. Same thing goes for your skin health. If you take care of your skin from an early age, 
you're going to end up with better skin. You're going to have less, you know, pigmentation or less wrinkling or less. You're going to just have better skin. Same thing goes with the deeper structures too. You take care of yourself. You take care of your body. You eat well. You don't have big weight fluctuations and you're going to age better. Or if you, again, if you are going to intervene, you intervene earlier and do something smaller, kind of preventative, not necessarily preventive, but early treatment. Um, you end up then doing maybe smaller procedures that are safer, that are less risky, that are less transformative, but you end up maintaining that result for a lot longer because you're taking care of it and you're taking care of the whole package. Uh, Dr. Gawi has a really good saying. He says, why go buy a nice suit and then forget to iron it and tailor it? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you've tailored such a nice suit and then next thing you know, it's like you don't dry clean and you've got stains on it. Right. So you go do like a facelift and then if you don't take care of the skin, it's kind of like, why'd you do this? What's the point? What's the point? Or you're not optimizing your result. There's always a point. And obviously, when we're talking about cosmetics, people have limitations, financial being one sure. of them, recovery time, time off of work. You know, they have other things in life, too. And this is, you can't obviously, you know, have them in your office every day as much as we'd love to. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, you kind of have to talk to patients and say, listen, like, I can only do so much structurally from the underneath side. And then it's up to you to kind of maintain the result, but also kind of take care of the outside. Absolutely. What is your most consistent procedure that you would say you're like i'm putting all my money on that he said Faceless. all of them all, all of them, them. <laughs> i know right well as a, as a i think faceless really yeah I and think i so. think that has the biggest i don't know what the word i'm looking for is but like if people get very scared about the word facelift they're like oh we're gonna look like pulled or we're gonna look like a cat woman well you see so many bad ones you really do but i feel like now they're getting much better the quality is much better like when we were younger the, it was like you know <laughs> wow too much you know you're in a wind tunnel but like, and also like the lower facelifts are very popular. So that's an interesting one. Cause I thought you were going to say rhinoplasty. No, rhinoplasty is the least, um, really the most unpredictable surgery because you have to think of things are healing scars heal and in a circle. They're going to heal different from one side to the other. There's different differential pull. Um, you have air so, and also like our noses are kind of more dirty air quotation marks. Mm -hmm. Um, so you have like infection risks that are present that in other like body cases are not necessarily as high. So, Rhinoplasty is very challenging. And actually, that's probably why most plastic surgeons won't do rhinoplasty. Hmm. And that's fair. It's just it comes with a lot of headaches. It comes with a lot of stress. Um, and the patients are very demanding. It's also in the middle of your face. Like, right. And you're, everyone's asymmetric. So whether you, mm -hmm. if you look really closely, everyone has one cheekbone that protrudes a little bit more than the other, or one half of the face is wider. The, you know, the zygoma is a little bit wider on one side than the other. So it's like trying to build a tall building on a hole because this middle of our face is a hole for the air to go in and we can breathe and you're dealing it with a, on a slope. Mm -hmm. So good luck trying to build a straight structure right. that looks symmetric on a, on a hill. Yeah. yeah, It's really hard. And they, everyone heals so differently. And I think, I feel like with rhinoplasty, that's very apparent, like the scar tissue amount and you're right, it's right on your face and there's nothing to hide it. There's not a lot of fat. It's just, that's it. Exactly. Why would you say facelifts are the most consistent I think, for you? I think they're just, if you plan the incision well, you're meticulous in your execution. I've been trained to do the extended deep plane where you kind of have the most natural result. You're pulling not just the skin, which used to happen in the 80s and 90s. And that really is what gave you that windswept yeah. high time because people were just like, okay, you're on a cruise ship. Pull the skin. <laughs> yeah. Or, you, or you're, you're on, on a motor. You're on the Titanic. <laughs> Either you're on the Titanic. The front of the Titanic. It's going down. Or, Leo. Or you're with Tom Cruise on the back of his bike. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. On, uh, when he's, when he's, 
guys in um, <laughs> Top Gun. Top Gun, exactly. <laughs> so it used to be that people were just like pull the skin as tight as possible and then let that do the facelift and do all the work. And we all know skin stretches. I mean, if you see it like. It sure does. Damn it. I know. Gosh, it I wish it did. Can you come up with something that could fix that? Think about pregnancy. <laughs> That's what can fix it. Honestly, radio frequency um, microneedling is probably the biggest game changer that we have in terms of tightening skin, building true collagen in the place where it needs to be in the dermis and not subdermally mm -hmm. and thickening the skin. So technology changes. And like, you know, that we have that on our fingertips, like that is probably the go-to for building skin and kind of getting, turning back the clock from just the skin perspective. Fascinating. Yeah. Really fascinating. Let's just do a little mini consult here. I see, I see your head turning. <laughs> I have a light bulb idea. <laughs> okay, so I'm a patient, right? And I'm coming to you. This is my first time. I'm coming for a rhinoplasty. What would you say? I would say you used the word perfect earlier. And so go find someone else. There's really? no such thing as perfect. No, well, you know, but I like what I, I like if I no, wanted to do what something. You want. And of course, this has always been in the back of my head, like a little dip right where I got a bump in my nose. Mm -hmm. What would you say? Be honest, even though it's live. But and I don't is... think he's getting a full picture. Shh, shh, shh. Okay. You can't say anything. I agree You've with you, a, Brandy. A full picture. Oh, boy. What am I missing? <laughs> You've had a rhinoplasty before. No. Okay. Mm -hmm. You had trauma there. Broken nose. I, I bumped it on the mm -hmm. side of our pool deck when I was younger. That's it. But it wasn't like anything crazy. Mm -hmm. um, listen, it, it, we'd talk about your desire. So you want you would like to have a more straight or even a scooped in, not a scooped yeah, out like a little, nose. Like a little... Yeah, we'd shave that down, and then we'd have to address with your your tip. You're, you have a weak um, lower cartilage, so mm -hmm. when you smile, your tip kind of droops down, which is very common. Uh -huh. And that has to do with the, the tension and uh, structural difference between your lips and your smile. Because you have a nice big smile, and it pulls down the muscles of your lip, will pull down your nose, and then there's no support of the tip, so it slides down. Fascinating. So we would have to fix that and address that as well. So you would pull it, the time. pull the tip up, up a little bit to keep it in place. Dip. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Can't we just inject some Botox to keep that from happening? <laughs> yeah, can we do that? No. <laughs> so, now do you want to tell the real story? <laughs> what? What? You tell it. I want to hear the real story now. Well, it's not. I mean, she has filler in there. Brandy yeah, did a little does. filler right here. Okay. It did. It, it did. And it did more. take it. It's and better. it did take it a little straighter. Um, but I, like coming in for a consult right? You have people and they've never had a surgery or they've had surgeries. And some people will be like, you know what? You're good. You don't need it. Like I, you're, you're that type of surgeon as well, right? You're very honest. You need this. You don't need this. I try to figure out how much it bothers someone, right? Yeah. Because there's, it's always about assessing risks and benefits. So with every single surgery, every single injection, there's a risk, right? Mm -hmm. And so if someone's like, oh, you know, I'm here because my like spouse wants me to be here, my friend or this or that, like they're not good candidates. Mm -hmm. It's the one that says like every time I take a photo, I look at my nose, I throw away like 30 photos. I make my friends retake them. Every time I walk by a reflective surface, I take an extra second to look at my nose. Like those are the people that you're like, okay, it's bothersome to you. Yeah. And they've also now taken an extra step. They've come into your office, right? So now they've like taken time out of their day, day off of work. They've paid a console fee. They're like ready to do something. And right. so now you have two big factors that you're kind of like, okay, so this person actually is 
This is causing them some sort of distress, right? And it's minor. And the best patients are the ones that are like, oh, I can live my whole life like this. It's not the end of the world. I have a job. I have a great family. It just bothers me a little bit, but yeah. enough that I want to do something. Mm -hmm. And so those are like your, your perfect candidates. It's the ones that the patients that are like, oh, my God, my nose or my eyes or my face is like, you know, the reason why I can't find a job, the reason why I don't leave the house ever, the reason why I like have no friends, I have no, nothing like this. Like they are actually probably better candidates for some sort of, you know, referral to like a therapist and things like that, yeah. to a life coach. There's different avenues that we can plug them into to kind of get them into a better headspace. And then maybe then you can address them surgically. But the biggest mistake is trying to address certain things surgically when the problem isn't a surgical problem. That's a great yeah. point. I love that. I love that too. That's really awesome. I love it. Um, so then if when they come into for the consult, then the next step is what? So is the consult pretty short? I mean, I guess it depends on what type of surgery you're going to do, but let's just stick with the rhinoplasty. So that what else would go into usually that? I'll see, usually I'll see people at least twice before operating. So one is an initial consult where I get to know you, you get to know me. Mm -hmm. We kind of talk about your goals. We talk about, you know, your history. If you're even a good surgical candidate, you're healthy enough to undergo surgery and that you have reasonable expectations. And then you think about it a little bit. And then if you want to proceed, I ask that you come back and then we kind of dive into a, a deeper dive. You show me like inspiration photos. You're like, okay, I like this part of this person's nasal tip. I like this. Do you think that's possible given my anatomy? Do you think it's not possible? And then I say, if I can get you 80% of the way there, are you going to be happy or are you going to want to come kill me? And so, like, that's a serious question that mm -hmm. I always have to answer and ask myself is, like, if I don't deliver 100% and I deliver 80%, are they going to be, like, so disappointed and just, you know, want to, like, come here and cause chaos? And, like, you know, that's a real problem. Yeah. Do people bring in like celebrity pictures? I mean, especially here in Beverly Hills. And they're like, this is this is the nose I want. This is, you know, the, these are the breasts I want. These are the legs I want. Like, do they do that? They lot? do, of course. I mean, and with Instagram, it's so easy. And you, you alluded to this earlier. It's a blessing and a curse. And now that people are talking about plastic surgery and they're willing to talk about, willing to share it, willing to post about it. It's great. People are educated. But then there's a certain amount of overeducation or with Instagram, there's like fillers, filters and different yeah. angles. And like the celebrities are so good about like showing different angles and knowing what angles look good on them and what lighting and this and that. And so when someone comes, so part of the second consultation is education mm -hmm. where they bring in photos and you're like, OK, well, this is great. But look at the background. This is actually face tuned. It's actually very pinched. It's or, you know, this isn't like real life. Yeah. Um, and funny enough, a lot of times um, I've seen Dr. Gavami, they'll bring in pictures of patients he's done. And he's oh, like, really? yeah, he's like, well, that's a compliment. Thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> um, we can definitely do that for you. But just so you know, like it looks a little different in real life yeah. and we'll get you there. And then with some, you know, the right makeup and the right angles and you learn to do this you'll look just like that like front page cover of vogue and yeah. swimsuit edition what's the what's the most common celebrity picture that you get in the office consistently like they're just bringing this like this person just keeps coming in like it's a kim kardashian i mean everyone's like a, the kim kardashian body right and the uh -huh. curves and things like that so that's mm -hmm. probably the most consistent is that but, still in like that's the end thing mm -hmm. okay they're trendsetters and i mean mm -hmm. yeah they definitely drive a lot of like the appearance of social media and the social appearance that young girls middle teen girls middle-aged girls and women want to be right mm -hmm. is there a celebrity picture that they bring in that you're like hmm that's interesting i never would have expected that person 
Oh, interesting. No, that's a great question, but <laughs> no. No. Okay. So when I went to that conference in Austin, Dr. Mauricio DeMaio had us take a picture of ourselves and write three things, like the first three things that we didn't like, which I never start with that in my office. I always tell my patients, like, what do you love most about yourself? And then, you know, I don't want him to leave feeling like crap. So he just went straight to making us feel like crap. But he said, write down three things when you look in the mirror that you don't like about yourself or when you look at your picture or whatever. So we write three things. Literally everybody, the three things that they wrote were not the three things that he would have seen. Well, he was saying, he was talking basically about perceptions, like what the patient perceives. Sometimes what he'll do is he'll start with Unless he says something glaringly obvious, he will start with what bothers the patient. But sometimes it's not even what, like, the patient sees. Like, when the when a patient's come in and they sit in my chair and tell me, what do you see? Yeah. I'm not going down that road. Mm-mm. No, yeah. like, someone walks in and they have, like, this massive parrot bird yeah. beak. No. And you're like, obviously, you're here for a rhinoplasty. And you're right. like, no, I'm here. They're I love this. I want my breast on. <laughs> and you're like... They're like, I can smell everything and I love it. And then you, all of a sudden you turn f- completely red, yes, put yeah. your foot in your mouth. And well, I tell true. patients, That's a good yeah, not, and you always say that. You're I, always like, well, always tell me say, what you see. Well, I do because I tell them I'm not going to point out something that they will never unsee once I point it out if it doesn't even bother them. Mm-hmm. So I let them tell me first. And uh, then at the end of the game, he said what? He did a facial assessment and then said. Basically, he was talking about perceptions like what patients perceive isn't always what the provider would do, right? What if people lie to you in the consult? They're like, I've never had anything all done to time. my nose. They and lie then, all the time, even then, about filler. Like, then do you do it's you ridiculous. go into any surgery? Like, do you know right then you're lying? And I'll, I'll get to that, like, in surgery, we're just not going to address it. Or do you believe them and then you get into surgery and you're like, oh, my gosh, like, there's all the scar tissue and, and you fibbed. And then they wake up and he says, do you have something to tell me? <laughs> something you yeah, want to go? to me? How does that go? So usually you're, you can probably pick up on 85 to 90% of the lies because uh-huh. you're trained to look at certain things and yeah. you kind of like, can spot different tell signs as a, you know, from one plastic surgeon to another. There's only so many ways to hide something or where to yeah. put an incision. So when you do a physical exam, you'll look for scar and things like that. If you see a scar that really resembles a surgical scar and they tell you that they've never had a rhinoplasty before, they're probably just want the cheaper price because a mm. revision rhinoplasty is double what a primary oh, rhinoplasty oh, is. That's so good to know. So they're like, or about, you know, they're, mm-hmm. everyone's prices are different, but sure. it's a lot more expensive because it's a lot more work, a lot more risk. It's a, the revision rate's a lot higher and you just have to account for that. Yeah. Um, and so you'll end up telling them, listen, is there something you want to tell me? And like, <laughs> something you like Brandy admit. said, and at the end of the day, that might be a patient that's not, that's probably not right for your practice, right. right? Because if they don't feel comfortable and to tell you the truth and to be honest with you, I mean, this is a hidden privilege conversation in the exam room. It's professional. It's courteous. It's you need to get the information to do your job the best you can. And if they're not going to allow that, they're preventing you from doing that. Mm-hmm. There's no amount of money in the world that's worth taking on that patient. Mm-hmm. And so... It's just it's just setting up. It's like dating, right? A plastic a surgeon and a patient are like a relationship because you're bonded to them forever. The moment you put a scalpel to someone, you're bonded. You're taking responsibility for them during the surgery, after the surgery. Twenty years later, they go and like mm-hmm. you know fall trip, break their nose, and they're like, oh my plastic surgeon, like let me call him up. It's yeah. like two in the morning. Hey, you know that rhinoplasty you did thirty years ago, like. 
I yeah, I need a fix. <laughs> and that's I've what they're saying. Like, find your plastic surgeon and stick with them. It's like true. a really good one and stick with it. Like throughout your whole life. Yep. Throughout your old, old, old life. <laughs> so you find, a one. One. find a young one. Find a young one. It's not to grow old together. Yeah, you can grow old together. Um, so, so that's my take on that. Okay. It, then it, every now and then, if you do get tricked, or there's now with injectables, that's a known thing now. Mm-hmm. Like facelifts are going to be a little bit more scarred, a little bit more, you know, the planes will be a little challenging, or just not as virgin as they used to be if you don't inject things. And that's just the way it is with modern day. You just have to get over that, get used to it, you know, operate through it and expect it. Um, sometimes patients truly do forget, not major surgeries, but like injectables, and they'll, they won't tell you like, oh, five years ago I had sculpture or mm-hmm. radius or, you know, I had some filler in and things like that. And that's kind of small lie, so I don't think you should like kick them out for that. Sure. But at the same time, the more honest someone can be, the better you can do your job, the better you can help them. At the end of the day, it's for them, which is so short-sighted sometimes when people will lie to you or try to trick you and this and that. It's like, wait, you're only hurting yourself. Yeah. You're not hurting me. No. Like, yeah. I can do this either way. I'll end up doing, I'll spend more time in the operating room, fine, whatever. Like, we don't sit there and micromanage and say, oh, I only allotted like two hours of surgery time. Like, close up and you're done. You're done. Yeah. Like, we're going to get the job done. We'll stay as long as it takes. Uh, you know, we'll do as many things as we have to do. We'll like do the right thing for the patient. Yeah. That's kind of like what's kind of been beaten in our heads from the very beginning is like, do what's right, take care of the patient, and then everything else can get figured out afterward. That's great feedback. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about brow lifts? Yeah, how do you yesterday. feel about brow lifts? I think in isolated, in certain situations, it's acceptable and it will help, but you have to think about the risk benefit always, right? And like a scar, whether you're putting it in the hairline, at the hairline, or I mean, now this doesn't happen unless you're like a male with like deep creases, like on like right next to the eyebrow or in a deep crease. That's actually the most powerful because you get the most pull because mm-hmm. you're close to the action where you want to you know be pulling and lifting the eyebrow. The further back you go, the more you have to distort and pull to get a smaller effect on the eyebrow. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, someone like you, Brandy, it's like going to be tough, challenging because you have a longer forehead, which means you have to hide the incision further back, which means that the mechanism, the action is going to be further away. So it's going to be tough. But combined with a blepharoplasty, it does make sense in that you're pulling one up while you're pulling it down. So mm-hmm. at least it stays in the same position because what you don't want to do is pull it down. But you actually have a pretty nice shape overall. And with Botox, that has completely changed the game with yeah. brow lift and brow shaping. Yeah. Like you guys know if you're meticulous, you do a nice preoperative ass- or pre-injection assessment. You know what you're injecting, the, the different dosages, and you can like modify how the brow shape is and basically based on like how much frontalis you want activated or not, or if you want to like baseline pull, if you want to freeze that particular area, you can kind of play with someone's brow shape nicely. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Because there's, well, the other question I was going to ask too, before I go too far, men, we don't talk, we don't talk a lot about men. Do men come in for a lot of brow lifts and facelifts? I mean, is that Yes. Yeah, absolutely. This is like, like men now all 50, of a sudden. 50? No you way. Say? No okay, way. Like what's the, it used to be what's probably the used to hear like maybe it was like 5% men in a practice. Uh-huh. And now you're probably looking at 15%. Oh, so it's it's grown tremendously. It's nowhere near, yeah. I would say, like women. And then there's some practices that are exclusively men, right? Mm-hmm. Which is And so take those practices aside. But I would say probably your average plastic surgery practice probably has like probably 15% men. Um, hair is a big one now. Men are very self-conscious about hair. So like yeah. just... 
two days ago, yeah, we did like um, PRP injections, uh, Moxie, um, to try to stimulate and regenerate some hair and like the temporal hollows and then in the back in the scalp and the vertex. So you have hair transplantation as like a more, I guess, procedural option. And that will then the cutting edge stuff with that is taking out the follicles from the back where men are more privileged to have hair, n lack of hair loss in the back area. And then you transplant it to kind of the front area, which tends to with male pattern baldness um, recede first. Mm -hmm. So you end up kind of doing a little Rob Peter or Pay Paul situation. And um, men are doing Botox. They're doing a little bit of filler, um, tummy tucks. Um, they're doing some lipo for the love handles. So those yeah, are probably, why not? Why not? I they, mean, if I women can look great, life. why, why don't men? Best life. Yeah, exactly. Right? I yeah. think so. Just in general, as a society, we care about what we look like. Yeah. Makes you feel good. Exactly. Look good, feel good. That's what my oldest patient says. It's true. You look good, you feel good. It's true. She's 89. Oh, uh, she's probably a rock star. She's yes. awesome. Yeah. You uh -huh. can tell with that mentality. Yeah. And that, that you can tell, like someone says something like that, their confidence, their yeah. mental health exuberates on their outside and then they also will then like reflect their external mm -hmm. like skin and contours and they'll want to be rejuvenated to kind of match their internal persona absolutely we're gonna pause right there and we'll be back next week with part two pink stuff you guys this is so amazing it is a new product here at reverse gravity medical aesthetics it is a lactic acid resurfacing serum it is gentle effective exfoliation and hydration without irritation you can use this alone or with any skincare regimen it is awesome come see us today